0: In case you missed it,
1: with Susan Cahill,
0: a look back at the week on
2: News Talk. I definitely go for a park walk every day, I think, for myself anyway, with my mental health. It's really important to have spaces to walk around that are covered in trees and grass if you're um, stuck in, within the confines of your bedroom for working eight days you haven't even got the commute to go to and from work and so i think they're very important now when the weather picks up obviously it'll be a bit nicer but
3: and have you noticed maybe not today because the weather's not so good but when the weather's good the
4: parks are packed
2: they are jam-packed even over the weekend i was in phoenix park which again would be one of my local parks and it was jammers um, which doesn't bode well for the the social distancing aspect of things, but um, still great to see that people are making use of all the parks that
5: are around.
6: Oh, it's it's great to get out because like you spend so much, like if you're working from home, you spend so much time at home. So it's great to be able to like I like, I go for a walk every day on my lunch break, go for a walk after work. It's just really important. It's just a it kind of a way of detoxing, kind of getting your head kind of clear and straight. Mm. And it's just it's essential, really.
7: Barry White reporting. Hello, and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered why friendship is the most valuable thing in life? Well, take a listen to this.
1: When you say five, I'm fascinated by the numbers. Um, for like 150, would be the maximum number of friends. That seems like an awful lot.
8: <laughs> well, most of those you don't see very often. Um, so, you know, in fact, if you look at, I mean, it doesn't matter how you do it, we've done it looking at people's Phone calling patterns. We've looked at Facebook posting patterns. We've looked at how often people meet up with with friends and family. Um, however, you look at it, forty percent of your total social effort is devoted to those five friends. So they okay. cost you a shed load of time and, and effort. And then the kind right. of next ten people out uh, get about twenty percent of your total effort. So sixty percent of your total time and effort is given to and emotional. Kind of capital if you like is given to just 15 people and the other what is it 135 people get decreasing quantities so kind of in the outer limits we calculated that each person only gets about seven seconds a day from you so you have to you have to wait quite <laughs> a long time to accumulate enough time to spend the evening with them so they they, right. they kind of it's not that they come for free be, because they're tend to be old friends it tends to be where you in the outer reaches where you kind of park extended family members like distant cousins and and, right. and, and people like that because the advantage of them being family members is the family holds them in place for you you know auntie joe is okay. always checking up and, and letting everybody know how you know cousin uh, uh pamela's baby's getting on all these kinds of things so the family kind of come for free, but, but they're still important for you in, in these terms. Friends, you have to work uh, at as friends. It's you and them on your own, as it were.
1: Okay, so those five close friends—they're they're additional to your family. They so say no, not, no. They
8: they, they actually no. will consist typically. So you know, we kind of don't distinguish uh, in in these numbers between family and friends. They're all locked. Okay, in, locked in together. Um, but what you tend to find is that we treat family different. Family get priority usually. So pe- people who come from big extended families, uh, as may well be the case, in, in, in for a lot of people in Ireland, actually have fewer friends because they kind of you know fill all their slots up with family first. Right. If they've got any empty slots left over, then they go and fill those with 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 friends. And that's because family are the last group of people who whatever happens to you, they'll come to help you. You know, they're, they're the right. cavalry coming over the, the hill cavalry. when all else fails. <laughs>
1: right. I, I'm thinking I could send out colour-coded Christmas cards with this, you know, let, people, let some of the outliers know they're in the seven second bracket. Just so you know, if you haven't heard much from me this year, you did get seven seconds. So you,
8: you may find off. you lose a few of those very quickly. <laughs>
1: well, some of the outliers probably need to go. So, um, on <laughs> the five friends, um, why are they so important? What, what is it exactly you know, that they bring to the table that, that supports us so much?
8: Well, the, 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 I mean, this is something we've, we've kind of only relatively recently discovered over the last 10, maybe 15 years. But there's been a kind of absolute torrent of um, medical studies over the last decade or so showing that the best predictor of your psychological health and well-being your physical health and well being how quickly you recover from things like surgery or major diseases um, de- is depends on the number and quality of close friendships you have that that five core five group and, and it 's you know the the effect from uh, that those five friends have is much bigger than anything else your friendly neighborhood GP worries about on your behalf you know how overweight are you. How, how good is your diet? How much exercise do you take? How much alcohol do you drink? What's the air quality like where you, where you live? All these things kind of pale into insignificance compared to simply the number of close friends you have and the quality of those relationships. So they and the question then is, why do they have this effect? And we think probably it comes in, in two respects. One is, of course, they turn up with a bowl of chicken broth or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. when you're sick in bed and and it kind of lightens your mood and raises you up and makes you feel uh, good, as it were. And it, it certainly does that. Um, but the things we do with friends, such as having a chat, a, a laugh, uh, um, eating with them, you know, having a meal with them, having a drink with them, um, a sing song, a bit of a dance, maybe all these things trigger the endorphin system in the brain and. The endorphin system is part of the pain control system, so they, they're very powerful analgesics. Right, it's like taking a massive dose of paracetamol, because they kind of dampen all the cares and woes and pains that you're feeling, make you feel very relaxed and contented and trusting with the people you're doing these activities with. So you know, you, you it kind of just makes you feel better, and, and that obviously helps recovery from from um, um, diseases and things. But also, it Gosh. turns out they trigger the immune system and particularly what are known as NK cells or natural killer cells, which are part of the white blood cell um, setup. And they particularly target viruses and some cancers. So that's where they sort of seek and destroy is their, their mission. So they're particularly useful at the moment, I'd say.
7: Fascinating insights there from psychologist and author Dr Robert Dunbar, from Moncrief,
2: I listened to Montyshire um, Cymreig Martin speaking about ten days ago about the the reopening plan or the reopening schedule for the next couple of months, and he talked about taking a cautious approach because we did open up at Christmas and we saw what happened in the aftermath of that, and we're still really living with that. We've effectively been in lockdown anyway since about the twenty sixth of December, but April twenty sixth is now the kind of the the key date. So you're going to have the likes of the. The things you're talking about, the a lot of the sort of the sport resuming, um, in many cases the golf, the tennis, all of that sort of stuff. So do you, do you think we should just sit it out to April twenty sixth, or do you think it should be expedited and opened up a little bit sooner?
9: I th- I think it should be it should have happened weeks ago. I mean they've known this evidence all along. I mean what's the reason to say that I can't go out and play a game of hurling or a Gaelic football or something like that? I mean if if it's zero point one percent, surely we should be putting all our efforts into ninety nine point nine percent and allowing people to have their lives backwards proven that it 's already safe that to me is is kind of is, is very very strange and you know i mean let 's see the science to prove that this is an issue and obviously it 's not available that 's pr- fairly evident i mean you talk about the the spike earlier in the year, and that 's fine i mean even David navarro of the, the special envoy on covid nineteen he, he kind of talked that we really do uh, appeal to all our leaders, stop using lockdown as your primary method of control. I mean, and we did it for a while, and when cases spike up, I think everyone would kind of say, yeah, okay, we understand that, the whole idea of pull on the green jersey. But when cases come down, and it's about doing safe activities that allow people to stay healthy and body and mind, the burden of proof is on the government to show why not. They've had a year, they've had all, had all the expert advice to hand, they've had huge funding a huge amount of civil liberties have been taken away. And some of them are understandable. But when, the, when science proves that it, this is 0.1%, people should be able to take a responsible approach to being able to go out and exercise again. Like, I'll give you an example. There's a teammate of mine in Kula, and, and from the 26th of April, he's going to be able to coach kids to play games, but he himself would be barred from playing games. I mean, does that add up? I don't think so. And okay. when it's safe for, for humans to play, let them play
2: I suppose the concern is, Shane, and I'll come to some of the text messages here in the news talk text line in in just a moment. But I suppose the concern is that you know it'll all come back to personal responsibility. And when you tell people, look, you're going to be allowed to meet up with one household or one friend out in a public park, the one becomes two. Or if you tell people, look, you can meet outdoors or you can meet out your back garden, the outdoor back garden becomes inside the house. So I suppose it's probably trying to limit the the interaction that can happen. It's not just the sports game; it's the before chat, it's the after chat, it's the pint in the park, it's the knock-on effect of it all.
9: People have been doing this for weeks. I mean, I I spent three hours walking around uh, Dublin city centre on Sunday, put up 15k, believe it or or not, and there's nothing but civil disobedience going on everywhere. People going for walks together, poking around, kicking a ball around. It's happening everywhere already. The so-called easing of restrictions that have been announced, these are liberties that a lot of people have already taken back. And we should be seeing spikes if these outdoor activities are an issue. And moreover, if you're telling people they can't meet outdoors, you're actually driving people to meet indoors. I mean, that's just kind of, you think about it, there's a logic to that. So if we say to people, right, don't meet indoors, Please, you can go ahead and meet outdoors. I think people are going to say, Do you know what, they're trying to meet us halfway there. The science does say that indoors are an issue. They say outdoor, fine. You will always have some people who will colour outside the lines. That is just life. But you can't lock people down forevermore and, you know, look, like, look at the amount of issues that are caused by people not being allowed to play sport to live mm-hmm. their life. You have like so many major illnesses that are not going to be picked up over the last year and you're going to have huge death tolls on the back of that as well. Like there's going to be a lot of people who will unnecessarily die of cancer, for example. So can we not just be guided by the science, as so often has been said, and trust people? Because this constant mistrust of people is leading to people meeting indoors anyway.
2: Okay, editor of ourgame.ie Shane Stapleton, you can hear more from... Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime
10: Live. Given you've spoken to all of these people and all of these experts, why do you think it is still something that isn't as openly talked about as as it should be. Given we are all, like as couples, when you go into it, you are all aware of the fact that, you know, miscarriage is a possibility and you're told, look, this happens in, you know, X percentage of cases and X percentage of people will experience it. And, you know, it could happen. And yet then when it does happen, as you said, all too often, it's not mentioned.
11: Yeah. I mean, I think it's the culture of silence that existed in Ireland for many generations. I mean, we can, we can go back to our, you know, way further back than our own parents' generation and it's probably a bigger conversation in terms of of the silencing of 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 people and particularly women in terms of speaking about women's issues and it just wasn't spoken about we we, women didn't talk about their reproductive system we didn't talk about sex therefore we didn't talk about pregnancy and we certainly didn't talk about miscarriage and that stuff has been carried on down through the generations it's been layered with you know, an element of taboo, it's, it's, you know, shame, huge amount of it is, is shrouded in shame. You know, when it happens to you, you feel like you did something wrong.
10: Did you and feel that woman, way? I
11: think, yeah, absolutely. I did. Absolutely. I did. And I, I think it's quite common. I have yet to meet a woman that has, has said otherwise. I mean, maybe perhaps there are, but, and I hope there are. Um I certainly, when it happened to me the second time, I tried to manage my, negative feelings around it. Whenever I was feeling that kind of blame and shame creeping in, I kind of, I was quicker to, to stop that narrative in my head because I knew how destructive it was. But the first time, yeah, the the moment I was told, effectively what happened to me was I went into the hospital for a scan and both times I found out that I had miscarried, but my, my body was effectively still thinking it was pregnant. I had a missed miscarriage, a term I had never even heard of before. So it's where baby stops growing, but you're still producing pregnancy hormones. It's a confusing and strange one, but it does happen. And um, yeah, the, fir- the first time it happened, I went in for an early scan and uh, I was told there was no heartbeat. There was, you know, baby had stopped growing. And I instantly went to, what did I do wrong? You know, replaying, what did I eat? Did I, was I drinking too much coffee? What was it? What was it that I did? Mm. Um, and I, I just think, you know, it's, we have to unlearn a lot of conditioned thinking that has been ingrained in us that we don't even realise. And I mean, that goes across the board in so many different facets of life. But this is one of those things where I think there's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen, particularly in Ireland.
10: It is one of those conditioned thinkings that we need to unlearn that it's... Worse when it happens later or, or that it's somehow inconsequential if it happens, you know, up to a certain point, say 12 weeks, that we kind of, as a society, we kind of think, Oh, we should look, that can happen. But then it's this awful tragedy. Yeah. Maybe when it happens much later, I'm sure, look, it's, it's, it's obviously awful for people for whom it happens much later. It's obviously awful though. It must be awful for people, whether it happens in week four or week 14 or 24.
11: Yeah. I, I get you completely. And I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I've certainly met, I I, I met a woman actually who um, had experienced different types of miscarriage where she had a first trimester loss and then she actually had a second trimester loss. And her take on it bizarrely was that she found it easier to grieve the baby that she lost in the second trimester because there was an acceptance, well, you know, you were further along, so you're almost given permission to grieve, whereas she said she struggled more with that early loss because of the fact that of the silence, because she didn't feel maybe as comfortable to open up and talk about it to people. And also it was like, it was so early. Sure, was, you were barely pregnant was the kind of attitude. And she found that more challenging. So I think, I think, look, as, as any woman will tell you, and look, anyone with kids knows this male or female. And this is, I suppose it's an important point to make as well miscarriage is not a women's issue this affects all of us this affects men just as much as it does women but i do know as a woman the second you pee in that stick and you see you're pregnant you imagine your future Um, and regardless of whether you miscarry in the first few weeks or i would imagine later on i mean obviously it's complicated and i'm not trying to simplify things but i think i think that loss is loss and it depends on how you grieve and how it impacts you But I do think it's important to give people space because certainly when it happened the first time, I'm quite a pragmatic person by nature. And I was kind of, look, I'm very sad. This is not what I wanted, but I believe everything happens for a reason and nature has its way and I'm going to be okay. And I went straight back to work and I was like business as usual. And then it wasn't until like a few months later that I had a form of a breakdown because I hadn't dealt with it. And it came out in frustration and anger and sadness and I was like what a, I don't know what's going on with me but I'm an awful form I'm biting the head off everyone and it was delayed grief yeah. that I learned later on when I started to look at it so I think we need to normalize being okay with not being okay and that you you know it's healthy to talk about it you're not always going to be sad but it's important to acknowledge if you are and not hide it dumb it down and pretend I have no reason to be like that because it was so early you have every reason to be. If it's upsetting mm. and it's hurt you, you have every reason to honour that feeling.
0: In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on
3: News Talk. Lots of people getting in touch in relation to uh, the vaccine programme. Uh, I'm a store manager in a grocery retailer it makes my blood boil. teachers who've been off for the majority of the crisis want to jump the queue ahead of my elderly staff. My staff had no time off. In fact, worked longer hours during the crisis. were more at risk than teachers, yet don't get a mention. Age-based rollout of the vaccine is the fairest way to get us back to normal.
12: In fairness, teachers haven't been off. They've been working remotely. I think you have to make that point. Uh, another te- texter says, Michael McNamara is 100% Correct. Project fear has been going on for the last year and people have no idea of their personal risks because government and media experts have done nothing but frighten people and have not had healthy two-sided debates.
3: Uh, Give us a break. The vaccine rollout has been a disaster so far. The amount of ups with vaccines not being supplied to GP surgeries, doses being given to family members and teachers in private homes, nursing home residents not being prioritised in group one in January. No thinking outside the box by trying to source from pharmaceutical companies actually based in Ireland. Local GP surgery only vaccinating during surgery hours. Not good enough. I completely disagree. It has not been a disaster. There has been problems. You've identified some of the problems. One of them is not trying to source from pharmaceutical companies. They've tried that it hasn't worked but I think on the whole the vaccine programme has been successful
12: and you are correct and the proof is this is that we don't have some stockpile of vaccines that we haven't managed to deliver is yet as we got as them we, we have them, delivered we them, them. And and that's, and that's the number one the criteria vast, exactly the vast majority of vaccines as they come in are delivered in that same week and, and there's no better there's a, measure of it than that there's a narrative
3: about everything in this country that everything we do is rubbish it isn't And let's call it out when it is when there are mistakes but actually let's say it's working quite well when it's working quite well.
12: Uh, Last text maybe we might read before we go to business. I am a teacher. I am 34. I would hate to get the vaccine before my mum and dad but very unfair commentary. I got COVID in December. Yes, I wasn't too sick but in my class 27 kids were sent home for 14 days as they were my close contacts. Nine teachers in our school have gotten COVID in the last year. Nine classes have been sent back to remote learning at some stage. If you want schools to reopen and to stay open teachers need to be vaccinated ASAP.
7: Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast.
0: We're here on the Dublin-Wicklow border. If I just step over this way, I'm in Dublin. And if I step over this way, I'm in Wicklow. How would you feel if the whole of Bray becomes part of Dublin?
13: I think it's been nice to just keep it the way it is. I don't think I'd like to go be called into County Dublin, no. Where
0: you're standing right now, this is technically County Dublin. Yes, I know, from
13: old Connit up.
0: Old up this yeah, area, Little yeah, Bray.
13: Yes, it would be. You and then know. we can
0: see Brayhead where we're standing. This side is Wicklow. Bray is a very proud town. For you, how would you feel, you know, now being a part of Dublin, being County Dublin?
13: I still think of Bray being Bray because I was born and rared in Bray and I don't know whether I would like it to work that way now, to Being honest about it.
0: You wouldn't like to see yourself as a true blue Dub?
13: No, no, not really, No.
0: But Dublin bus come here, you're technically yeah, Dublin yes. really aren't you? You are Dublin.
13: Yes I, su- I suppose. But and I su- you have a
0: bit of a, a Dublin accent I suppose, to so, a Wicklow accent
13: Well I don't think you should say that to me because I was born in Bray, so um, I'm not really you know.
0: So you're proud
13: I'm proud to be Wicklow
0: And you don't like the idea that realistically you are going to be part of Dublin
13: No, not really not really. I think just to stay the way we are I don't like change anyway, so maybe it's just I'm, I'm old and i probably, you know, because I was born in Bray, don't think I'd like to, to, to see a change. But if it comes, it comes. There's nothing I can do about it if it does. Bray is definitely part of Wicklow, without a doubt.
14: It's different to Dublin. It's more, it's its own place. And um, what
0: makes it different? They have Dublin bus, uh, they do yeah. Dublin things.
14: Bray isn't a suburb. Bray is a town and very much a proud town, um, and wants to retain basically, the fact that we are, Bray, County Wicklow, a town.
0: How do you feel about Bray becoming Dublin? For, for investment, for infrastructure, for other reasons? No, we'd be, lo-
14: we'd be lost. Now, I can't say that um, that the Wicklow uh, people, in terms of the, the, the powers that be, have done great in terms of organising facilities and etc for Bray and Wicklow but I think we'd be lost altogether if we were in Dublin. I think Bray should stay as it is. But it's it's basically Dublin isn't it? Bray is Dublin. Well it is yeah but as long as it's, it's always known as Bray. Do you mind if the Rathdown and Wicklow County Council do a deal
0: and they hand over Bray to the Rathdown County Council? Would they do a good job, that's it. Deniri Rathdown is one of the richest county
14: councils in Ireland. It could mean investment. Yeah, it, well, it would be a good thing, I suppose, yeah, for this area anyway. Because it, most of this area is known as Little Bray, and it's the older part of Bray. And Little in, Bray, most of Little Bray, is in Dublin in, anyway. Yeah, but it's always been classed as Bray, you know. Why not just cipher off the whole bit and make it all part of Dublin? Yeah, well, maybe. Maybe it'll be a good thing. You wouldn't lose your identity? Uh, hopefully not. But you'll still be from Bray? I'll still be from Bray. True and true. And why is being from Bray a good thing? Why are you proud of being a, a Bray lady? Well, I suppose that's because I've always been in Bray and my family are all from Bray. And What does Bray have to offer? Well, at the moment, very little. Well, I wouldn't say that. It's got, you know, it's got stuff. It's got stuff, yeah. It's it's got the seafront, but the town itself, nothing, which is an awful pity. And is that because of lockdown or? No, with beforehand, the money they seem to have, they're putting it down the seafront. They're forgetting about the centre of the town. But just think, if you joined County Dublin, that could change. Well, well hopefully as it will. it'd be a bright way of looking at things.
7: Henry McKean reporting for the Park Kenny Show.
4: Isn't it, though, an old argument that maybe hasn't really changed that the human skills, you know, you talk about engagement, listening, empathy, collaboration and storytelling. Were they not always relevant, Deborah, in terms of because if you can't deal with people and you can't motivate or encourage people, you're no use, really. You know, you're you're a liability to an organisation if you can't do that.
15: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, soft skills have always been important. And it's funny because I've spent my whole life fighting for them in, in the workplace. But, of course, as more technologies come in, as more we're more digitally aware and we're using more devices... <laughs> It's a bit like, um, you know, we use calculators now to to add up and we don't really add up anymore and we've lost those skills. We've lost the ability to map read because of um, our sat-navs and it's the same with the soft skills. If we don't use them, we lose them and that's what the book's all about. The book has a masterclass in it to help people reboot their human skills. That's what it's all about. Yeah.
4: Let's talk about empathy for a second. If, if you're not... I suppose, naturally disposed uh, to, like, understanding empathy or being empathetic, whatever the term is. Mm. How do you actually, What what? how do you improve that skill?
15: Yeah, great question. I mean, first of all, we are actually all as humans, most of us, unless we're psychopaths, of course, Um, naturally exposed to empathy, we have mirror neurons in our brain, which means that we can feel things even if they're not happening to us, which is why we cry at sad movies, for example. But the sort of empathy that we're talking about here is the ability to want to understand and help others. So that's what we need in business. So I think my key top tip would be, instead of saying, I understand, say, I want to understand. And that immediately takes you to a place of asking questions listening, um, and, you know, finding a way to help someone forward, which is what we need in business.
4: What do you make, uh, Deborah, of the last 12 months in Mm -hmm. how our, 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 I suppose, our our world of work, and, you know, it applies to most people, has changed hugely. The whole emphasis around Teams and Zoom and all those, I suppose, platforms that enable us to perform our roles, but one has to behave somewhat differently on them versus the i suppose reality of the traditional workplace
15: yeah absolutely i mean thank goodness bobby that we've actually got all of this i don't know what we'd have done had we not have had zoom and teams etc but of course it's helped keep us connected and that's great but you have to be even more human on them to actually make them work because they what they're sort of two dimensional as opposed to three dimensional so, you know, in my work, I spent a lot of time this last year training on Zoom and helping people to have a better impact on Zoom. And you have to think much more about your screen presence, your body language, your voice, because so, and your eye contact, where you're looking, because all of that is what creates the connection. Whereas when we're in a, when we're in a room, it's so much easier. But I think, you know, a, pe- a lot of people have learned new skills. But they're going to need a bit of a reboot, like reboot the human skills, if you like, for when they go back into the workplace, which is starting to happen now.
7: Some valuable insights there from Deborah Stevens from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from 10 till 12. When the rain
16: is blowing in your face And the, the world is on your case for you are warm and brave to make you feel my love, when evening shadows and the stars appear, and there's no one there to try your
7: Bob Dylan, as heard on the Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it,
0: with Susan Cahill. a look back at the week on News Talk.
17: McNeill, funnily enough, maybe it wasn't the case at the time, but now he'll always be the man who tried to stop the rising. Absolutely, one of the one of the great memoirs of, of the Irish Revolution is called uh, "On Another Man's Wound." It's a great title. It's easy to stand on another man's wound by, by Ernie O'Malley, and he, young writer, revolutionary then a medical student kind of walking through the city in, in disbelief on the 24th of April, 1916. He writes this great story of going down to O'Connell Street to get a sense of what's happening. And at the GPO, he encounters a woman who says, you know, only for old McNeil's countermanding order, there'll be more of those men in there. It's a shame to rush young boys into trouble. And really, McNeil, I suppose, in popular Irish memory, we remember him from school as the man who tried to stop the rising. Mm. But I think he's remarkable because not alone did he attempt to prevent the rebellion from happening, he somehow managed to reposition himself into the kind of revolutionary forces after the rising. And he became a kind of leading politician in the new state. Uh, the, the way in which he reinvented himself and got back into the game, I think, is absolutely remarkable. And that legacy kind of continued on. Uh, a grandson, Miles Tierney, was a, a Fine Gael councillor, in fact, the Fine Gael whip uh, on Dublin Corporation, and another senator, uh, Michael MacDool, remains remains in politics. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's been a continuation, if you will, from, from Professor McNeill. Uh, down, But I think it says a lot about the strength of presence of this man we're talking about today, that, you know, he was able to put himself back into the picture even after the rising. And he went on to do a lot of things in life, as we'll get into the Royal Irish Academy, the Irish Manuscripts Commission, wrote a lot of very, very important books like Ireland before St. Patrick, uh, phases of Irish history. So in one <laughs> lifetime, this man did an awful lot, but it's one particular controversial thing. That he's been remembered for. We'll maybe talk about whether he was something of a moderating influence or a bulwark within the GPO. We might get to that in a couple of minutes' time. But first of all, what's probably more striking about his place in the GPO and everything else that ran up to that is that he was considerably older uh, than most of the people who usurped him or who went against his wishes in 1916. Yeah, those who went into the GPO went against him ultimately, and his belief that there shouldn't be a rebellion uh, at all. But McNeil was born in 1867, which makes him kind of one of the most senior figures around revolutionary politics in the early 20th century in Ireland. That sounds kind of mad to people when you hear that now. You know, we think about politicians as generally quite kind of middle-aged figures. But the 1916 Rising and all the events around and, and just after it, it's very much a young man's game, mm. you know, and, and, and a young woman's game. The average volunteer is in their early 20s. That's not uncommon. Yeah, the signatories so were all very young men, going, weren't you they? Can, very, very young men. And you, you, can, you can kind of, with the exception of Tom Clarke, who's also in his 50s. I mean, Tom Clarke is the elder statesman of the Rising, and he's 58 years of age, when he signs the proclamation. So that kind of says everything. But MacNeill had kind of come of of age. He worked in the British Civil Service, which is kind of ironic given how how his life went. Mm -hmm. But being a little bit older than most of the 1916 generation meant that he was there in the late 19th century for the Gaelic revival. And that really was what politicized him. The Paul of the Gaelic League, Douglas Hyde, Douglas Dehida. He's a fascinating guy, you know, son of a Church of Ireland clergyman, Trinity College academic. And Douglas Hyde believed really naively, I think, that he could keep politics out of it out of the language Mm, question, out of culture and nationalism. Hyde, does that great? (laughs) Yeah, good luck. We are above and beyond all politics, all parties and all factions, offending nobody except the anti-Irishmen. I mean, if you believed you could keep something like the Irish language movement apolitical in late 19th century Ireland, well, you know, you had another thing coming. Unfortunately, Hyde did. Which probably means that it's not all that surprising then that he sort of lost control of this movement that he was a fairly nascent part of uh, to more radical thinkers. Absolutely. I mean, the, the kind of young up and coming nationalists, you know, relatively unknown young barrister called Patrick Pearce, trained to be a barrister, took one case, lost, and never took another. <laughs> so there's a, <laughs> so a lot about Pierce. Just
6: but went just back to teaching young... instead. That's what everyone does. Let's go back
17: to the school. Yeah. But this kind of you know, young upcoming generation of radical nationalists didn't see things in the way Douglas Dehida did. And uh, they felt like the, the language movement, like the GAA, had to be kind of explicitly nationalist and separatist. So MacNeill is kind of moving into that space, if you will, replacing Hyde as as the main figure of that movement. And the way he himself comes to the Irish language is brilliant. I mean, every year from 1891 until 1908, every single year, he departs for the Aran Islands. I mean, he's the original champion of the staycation, you know, the Aran Islands every year. (laughs) And he learns the language directly from people who are still speaking it you know, as their day-to-day living language of communication. Because there wasn't a whole lot of Irish to be heard in, in the urban environment in the late 19th century. The language was more or less moribund. Mm. So as a historian who wanted to go on then and kind of write about, research early Ireland, an uh, Ireland that didn't speak English, being fluent in the language was absolutely vital. And that's how he did it. He went to the source, if you will. He went to the Iron Islands every single summer and he learned it from those who spoke.
7: Some terrific storytelling there from author and historian Donald Fallon from On the Record with Gavin Royley, and of course you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from eleven till one. Now this week, News Talk launched Reimagining Ireland.
18: Here's Josh Crosby. Temple Bar is a microcosm of Dublin city, and so if Temple Bar is dependent on receiving a large number of people. So is the city in general. You're certainly not going to see any activity here until probably the last quarter of the year, and I'd say it'll be significantly down. We don't know. We don't have a figure on this.
3: Do you think we can expect much of the same, or will people's habits have changed, or will there be different marquees set
18: up? We've been very vocal on this. We want outdoor dining, outdoor socialising. You know, we have Meeting House Square in Temple Bar to be the primary outdoor cultural event. Uh, in, in, in the city markets absolutely 100% we run markets we want more markets to be run we want more cultural events out in the street they don't have to be big they can be small you know you can have small music uh, gigs in in the spaces like this when we're standing in 30 40 people it's it, it's controllable that in no way is going to restore the economic picture like it was before but it'll help get the city open and it'll help it from falling into some degree of uh, of dereliction in terms of what other things? we Yeah, rapid testing is a great idea. I don't think this whole debate on let's change the night-time economy when we don't have an economy is just absolutely bonkers. So, yeah, 24 hours. Let pubs open for 24 hours. Pubs can't open at the moment. And even if they all could open in the morning, there's no one here.
3: A cautious outlook ahead for one of the country's most popular areas for nightlife. Now, when we take a Saturday night, there are many factors that give us joy. The whining and dining.
0: Appetizers for the red. Appetizers for the blue. Yes, yes
3: sure the catching up with friends... Are you doing? ...and the entertainment. But what makes the night special is the atmosphere. So when this part of our lives does return, will we be brushing shoulders as we queue for the bar or dancing near strangers? Well, I visited Dolan's warehouse in Limerick, where I met father and son Mick and Neil Dolan, who tell me how they envisage the return
1: of nightlife. People are chewing at the bit to get out of gigs, get out the pubs, to talk to people, to interact with people. So I think there's going to be a huge thing in 2022 people just getting out going to gigs more people i think are going to be going to gigs than ever because you miss you that's the thing that you miss you miss interaction and you miss music and music is part of every three venues here
6: 2022 will we go straight back to where we were in 2019 or what do you expect i think it could be slightly different but i think people like I think the appreciation of what people want to do, they want to see live performances, they want to get out. I really do believe that there's such, a, there's such a fury there for it. Definitely it would be a boom straight away and then it would probably level off in 2019 levels. I do think it would be that good.
3: And with the news of staggered closing times and extended opening hours, how would that affect the nightlife scene here in Limerick?
6: I think the late licence has, has been a torn, I would say, on a lot of people. It's not very flexible. It doesn't adapt to the modern world. I mean... People from all over the country, all over the world, sorry, come to Global Ireland as it's called and they have different nightlife than we do. So to look at that I think it needs to be more flexible, it needs to be easier to do and it needs to be more modern.
3: Mick and Neil Dolan from Dolan's in Limerick there telling me they envisage more people than ever going to live events when it's safe to do so. But what do the punters on the street think?
14: Irish people, they'll run till they get there. You don't think you need people taking caution about? Not at all, no. not at, no, at all. Ah, you must be joking. Box. But once people wear masks and yeah. um, keep their, their distance, there shouldn't be a problem. And would you be looking forward to a night out? Absolutely, because it's been miserable.
1: Well, I personally don't drink, so I won't be rushing back. But uh, I do like to go out for meals and stuff
10: like that in in pubs and and places, you know. Oh, yeah. I yeah.
2: definitely want to go to the pub. <laughs>
12: I think people will be so excited that it'll just be packed.
2: No, probably not. I've gotten used to being here with myself, reconnect, all that.
14: So your habits have changed for what you're looking for in the night house?
2: Yeah, definitely. It won't be going wild, you know, down in
4: pines. (laughs) And you saying you will be rushing back?
6: I will be, because I'll be working there, unfortunately. I'll be on the wrong side of the bar, but sure. I think the first couple of weeks or months, it'll just be really messy. there will be just people in an absolute hoop and... I'll be there crying at half three in the morning, cleaning up the bar.
10: I'd be cautious, but if I was vaccinated, I'd go back. You do miss the nightlife, even just going for a meal in the pub, you know? So I think uh, there'd be a quick exit us back to the pubs again. <laughs>
15: oh, I'd
7: say there would be. Can't even sit out and have a coffee. No mind a point. What is it about a night out? You miss the most? Seeing me friends and not being at home anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
17: Do you be a bit of caution there, people when they go back into a pub?
2: No, once a few drinks that, I think it'll be all gone.
7: Josh Crosby reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. On Saturday, John Fardy spoke to film director Pippa Ehrlich for Screen Time.
5: When you saw that footage, and he told you, you know, there's three thousand hours or whatever, but when you saw him actually interacting with an octopus, did you think was did you jump ahead in your own head maybe and go, now we really have something special here?
19: I mean, I guess I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I knew we had, and I, and it was also it was, it was the way that Craig spoke about her, and 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 the emotional way he spoke, and, and the fact that it had been so transformative for him. I mean, I, I knew we had something special because I could see what the impact on him had been.
5: Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that I really like about it is that I, I'm not sure, I know I may be wrong about this, but that like the environment is of course it's mentioned, but there's absolutely no soapboxing. Like there's, there's mm. no piece of this where, you're, where where people are on marches talking about we need to reclaim the seas or stop. There's no mention of plastic, for instance, at any point about the oceans being destroyed. Like this is just the story of a man with an octopus under the water and in a way it could have been told a thousand years ago if we had the technology to do it. But at the same time, or maybe I'm wrong, maybe you can tell me, but this clearly seems like a tale all about the environment as well.
19: It absolutely is. And, and I'd come from this world of, of conservation journalism where hmm. you know our, our approach had always been very fact-driven and very overt. Um, yeah. And I think I'd possibly become a little bit disillusioned yeah. with that approach to conservation storytelling. And I really wanted to try something different. Yeah. Um, and it was a huge debate within our team and it, it was painful. It was painful because everybody had a, had a different feeling about how we should do this. And and our our goal was to really tell a powerful story about the relationship between people and nature and, and make a positive impact mm-hmm. um, on the world in terms of ocean conservation. It was really important to us, but I, I, I felt strongly from the beginning that, that we should, tell a story that was universal and tell a story about, you know, that was emotional mm-hmm. and a story about the love for the nat- natural world. Um, and there were many differing opinions, but it was something that, that James and I were very much on the same page with. And it was also that the, all of those emotional messages and environmental messages are so deeply embedded within the relationship between Craig and the octopus, you know, no, no. that, yeah, as the story developed, it became kind of a no brainer, um, yeah. but, but we, we, we were nervous. I mean, long after I'd finished the film, I stayed very, very nervous and I have been overwhelmed and relieved and humbled and deeply, deeply grateful that the film has been received in the way that it has and that, you know, that that impact has come through
7: what an interesting story. Conservation journalist and filmmaker Pippa Ehrlich from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune in to John every Saturday evening from 6 till 7. OK, I'm going to leave you with now. Own Sheen and off the balls crappy quiz. Have a great weekend.
6: Right, we're on to the final. Our winner tonight will be decided in the round that separates the men from the boys, the Luxembourg's from the Republic of Ireland. It's an O-Theme in particular, ridiculously easy rapid-fire round. The score you get in this round will be added to your score in the previous round. There will be 40 seconds for everyone to answer from the same set of questions. So we're going to start with the person with the highest number of points, which is Phil, who's on four. Then onto the person in second, which is currently a tie between Nathan and Adrian. But we tossed a coin before coming on air, and Nathan won that particular tie break. (sighs) Nonsense. It's, it's the way it nice. mumbles. That should First never point. be the case. If you get a question correct, I'll ask you another How question. How many points am I on? One. one. You're three behind Phil. So if Phil gets an early one incorrect here, Nathan, it's well, it's, it's all on. Friday. Another pity
18: point, of
6: course. But. Can, yeah, can, um, can Nathan pull off a Jesus and uh, come back to the bed here? <laughs> Phil Egan, are you ready? <laughs> It does have a <laughs> messiah. <laughs> this is supposed to be religious, mate, not. Not, in, not in keeping. Phil, you ready?
5: Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. Like, yeah. if, only the word, if only they weren't the most stringent blasphemy laws in the world in this country.
18: <laughs> well, he if said you to very, he did say, ah, Jesus, to
5: be fair. It doesn't yeah, have to be Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> yeah.
6: uh, Phil, you ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's just compose myself here. Your 40 seconds start <laughs> now. Name the only League of Ireland Premier Division team with a 100% record so far. Ben Correct. Eden Park is in which New Zealand city? Auckland. Correct. What age is Harry Kane? 28. No, 27. Which League of Ireland club did Seamus Coleman play for, Nathan? Tiger Rovers. Correct. Luxembourg's Gerson Rodriguez plays for what club? Uh,
5: uh, Dini McKay.
6: Name any South African of the teams to take part in the Rainbow Cup. Uh, the Bulls. Correct. Who is the manager of Brentford?
3: Oh... See his uh, come on, face. Thomas no, Frank. Come on. Who's got uh, more
6: assists in this year's Premier League? Kevin De Bruyne or Bruno Fernandez? Adrian. Fernandez. No, Kevin De Bruyne. And Nathan Murphy would have tied it had oh. he got that one correct, but he didn't. Oh. He finishes on three points. Phil finishes on five. Adrian on nothing. Phil Egan is Thomas a champion Frank. once again. Thomas Frank. Thomas <laughs> Frank. Nathan, was that close to pulling off oh. a Jesus? <laughs> Uh, Phil Egan takes it away.
18: For some reason Dean Smith came into my head. Nah. And then I couldn't get out of it. You ruined it for the rest of us, Nathan, by taking oh, half an hour or two. Chance, that's an image I you just want to get out of your head.
5: I had a chance. That's that's all the more sickening. Yeah, you know, I should've got us. Should have um, got us. What, what your, was
6: Adrian's question? Adrian's question was about assists. De Bruyne, Bruyne. And, uh, oh. Fernandez. Uh Phil Egan, what, what do you have to say for yourself after mm. yet another win? That was
18: that was squeaky bone time though. That was squeaky bone time. And Harry Kane. He's younger than I
6: thought. Yeah, he certainly is. Well, uh, congratulations, Phil. Commiserations, Nathan, and commiserations once again, Adrian. Thanks a million for joining us on this Easter special of the Crappy Quiz. We will be back next week with a master special. So, who'll be putting on the green jacket? Find out next week. See you then.
0: In case you missed
1: it, with Susan Cahill,
0: a look back at the week on News Talk.